The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. There, uh, there once was a son, his friend, his father, and a bully. Son, friend, father, bully. The son lived in the Middle East, and he had a rich father that he desired to please very, very much. The son had a friend who loved the son very, very much. And the son also knew a bully who hated him very, very much. One day, the bully threatened to beat the son with a pair of brass knuckles. But the friend came to the rescue, raising up his slingshot to the bully's eye and threatening him. The bully left, but he swore his revenge. The son and the friend competed together in something called kite fighting. The son was the flyer of the kite up in the air, and the friend, the beloved friend, would run and go get the kite in their competitions. Well, one triumphant day, the son won the local kite fighting tournament and finally, finally earned his father's praise. The friend does his part and runs to find where the kite fell, only to be confronted by the bully. The bully promised to let the friend go if only he'd give him the kite that meant so much to the son. But the friend said no, he refused. And the bully beat him and severely sexually abused him. The son actually witnessed all of this happening. But the son didn't do anything. He was too scared to intervene. And he knew that if he did not get the kite, his father wouldn't be proud of him. He'd be ashamed that his son didn't have it. This inaction by the son sends him into hiding from the friend, avoiding him at all costs because his shame was so great. Some time passes, a war breaks out, a terrorist group assumes control of the nation, and the son and the father flees, never to come back, or at least not for many decades. The rest of the story is found in the the book Kite Runner, which you can read there. I won't spoil it for you. But at this point in the story, the story is so multi-layered with the reality of crippling shame, isn't it? Of unresolved shame, shame of a son and what he left undone through his inaction, Shame for a friend and what was done unto him. Perhaps even shame in that relationship between father and son, right? The desire to please. Does your life have crippling shame in some area this morning? What have you done that if other people knew you just couldn't go on, they wouldn't love you, right? They would perhaps tell you or think of how worthless you already are convinced you are. Perhaps your shame is like that of the son's friend. Something has happened to you. You've begun to believe that someone as worthless as you probably deserved such a thing. Perhaps it's shame like the son's, that shame of inaction, of allowing something to happen, and you rehearse that pointing finger. You could have done more. You should have done more. It's all your fault it happened Perhaps it's other shame. It's shame of a last name. It's shame about not measuring up in some way to mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, boss, friends, whoever it might be. But you this morning feel like your very name is shame. Our passage today presses us to scan our lives for shame, and it pokes the spot we've hit in it. It puts its finger right on it. Our attempts to run and hide in our shame are often so fruitless, right? Because we can't outrun that feeling of dirty in the back of our mind, of unworthy, unclean, too damaged, too damaged to be valued. They're always on the run, always having something to be hidden. But what if? 
What if our shame could be brought out into the open? What if we could open our hearts to receive confidence about a future? Freedom from the shame within. Receive a father who is always pleased with us and whose love never ever wavers. What if? Our text this morning is a story of another young man hiding in his shame, certain of his worthlessness, and who, by his cultured standards, deserved nothing less than humiliation and death. 2 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 13. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel. In at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and he fell on his face. He paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table. Always. And he, Mephibosheth, paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to, and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now, he was lame in both his feet. This is God's word, story of your grace. Let's pray. Father, you tell us to come and to pray. Father, you make us sons and daughters, and you invite us come. May we come to hear the words you speak this morning. Prepare our hearts to receive them. And Lord, expose, expose the shame deep down, God. Heal us in the way only you can. Comfort us in the way only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We need someone to offer balm to our shame-ridden hearts. Salve. To comfort us. We need someone who will show us faithfulness and grace. Like David did to Mephibosheth. This passage teaches that we who sit in shame, there's something we can't do. We can't lift ourselves up out of it. Rather, we need a great king who is faithful and gracious. And to him, we must open our hearts, ready our hearts to receive a future, freedom, 
and a father. To say it simpler, because great King Jesus is faithful and gracious, we must open our hearts to receive from him. Must open our hearts to receive from him. Now, to to work out this truth, to see it here in the text, we need a little bit more background. I know jumping into Second Samuel, we haven't had that. But well, let's give some background, and then we'll retell this story just a bit. So as you remember, I me mean, mentioning last week, perhaps, the books of First and Second Samuel are telling the story of redemption, not only for Israel, but actually of the whole world. And this redemption road runs right through David. Now, before David rose to power, he was preceded by a man named Saul. And unfortunately, Saul disobeyed God. And so the Lord chose a new king to reign, David. But at this time, David was just a shepherd boy in a field, tending sheep. So in the meantime, Saul has a, name, has a son named Jonathan. And he and David actually become best friends. And they covenant, they promise with each other. He said, I will always protect you and all of your family. Me too, me too, I'll do the same for you. It's David and Jonathan's relationship. And in time, Saul grows jealous of David, knows that he's going to become king, and he does everything he can to try and kill David. But Jonathan helps David escape, and David is a man on the run for many, many years. Now, during this time, Jonathan had a son and named him Mephibosheth. You can get out the baby name book and pen that one down. There's a couple of those names today. But when Mephibosheth was only five years old, his grandfather Saul and his father Jonathan were killed in battle. And it's upon their death that parts of Saul's family decide to flee in fear, right? The king has fallen. And a servant scoops up Mephibosheth to run away in haste. But Mephibosheth is dropped. He falls. And he becomes crippled in both of his feet. Now in some time, his uncle Ishbosheth, write that one down, was made king. But after a while, he was murdered as well. And this ended up opening the door for David to become king, to unite the entire kingdom. And this is in part what we saw in 2 Samuel 6, is David has become king. He's bring, he brings the ark into Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel 7, God makes these amazing promises. And then in chapter 8, God levels all of David's enemies. And we arrive at 2 Samuel 9, as David sits down with his kingdom united. But where's Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth is living somewhere as an enemy to the crown, a cripple, and he's enveloped in immense shame. Could his shame be healed? It's part of the question in the text, certainly only by the likes of a faithful and gracious king. Let's look back to the text. We'll retell the story a bit. Look, if you look at verses 1 and 2, we can remember that Saul had tried to kill David over and over and over again with no success. So why is David longing to show kindness, right? It's because David himself is a faithful and gracious king. He's faithful to his covenant, to his promises to Jonathan, to protect he and his family at all costs. Even though Jonathan should have been an enemy, right? Saul's son. But David was faithful to his promise. And he was gracious to all of Saul's family, even after the fact. He recruits Ziba, and Ziba goes off to find this boy. Now, Ziba actually was a former steward of Saul's house. He was actually in charge of all of Saul's uh, land, his estate, if you will. Look ahead to verses uh, 3 and 5, and it's, in this, it's at this point where the tension actually should start to rise in us. 
because we find that Mephibosheth is found out. Notice it mentions that he is lame in both of his feet. Now, in this culture, to be crippled is to be, in essence, worthless in that time. You can't provide for yourself. You can't provide for others. You're a liability, not an asset to be valued. You produce nothing, but you only consume care. And the author wants us to see this. He wants us to see Mephibosheth and his circumstances and think shame. Bosheth, that part of that name, literally is the word for shame. It's his name, shame. David summons the shame-ridden one to him immediately. When you look in verse 6, Mephibosheth has been found out, carried in, and he falls face down before David. And what are David's only words initially? Mephibosheth. This is the highest point of tension in the story for the original reader, and likely also for Mephibosheth, right? See, it wasn't abnormal that when a new king came to power, what would he do? He would kill everyone of that past king's family, right? You remove every rival, every threat. And Mephibosheth was the grandson of the king, son of Jonathan, beloved Jonathan. Mephibosheth could have been seen as a rival, David, according to cultural standards, had every right to end this person, right? This crumpled ball of flesh on the floor to crush his shame-filled enemy. We can only imagine and guess at what Mephibosheth might be thinking. I've been caught. I'm about to die. I am a dead dog already. We hear that on his lips later, right? All of his fears have finally become a reality. So there he lays on the floor, ready to receive what he deserves, or rather what he thinks his shame Deserves from a shattered kingdom and from lame feet. Verse 7, David says to him, Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. That's the faithfulness part. David, faithful to his promises. And here comes the gracious part. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul. But wait, there's more. And you shall eat at my table always. Grace grace. Mephibosheth's amazement can only express itself in questions. Who am I? Who am I? I am as good as a dead dog. Why such goodness towards me? But Mephibosheth's question goes unanswered. We see what happens in verses 11 to 13 as David completes his promise. Again, faithful, right? All of Ziba's household will now serve Mephibosheth as they once served Saul. All that was once Saul's is given to Mephibosheth, and it is said that he lived in Jerusalem and ate always at the king's table. Like what? Like one of David's own sons. Cripple, enemy, deserving death, hiding as his only hope, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth only had shame as an inheritance as he lay crumpled on the floor before David. And David gives him everything. David says, instead of death, I will show you kindness and love. David says, instead of taking what you have, I will give you what once was yours and more. Instead of allowing you to starve and hiding, I will feed you at my very table. Instead of being my enemy, I will make you like my very own child, my own son. You see, Mephibosheth couldn't pick himself up out of his shame-ridden family, body, life, Neither can we. Family, body, life, past, expectations for the future. We can't do it. We can't lift ourselves up out of 
that. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth needed a faithful and gracious king to do it. And David is that king. The king that all other kings after this in Israel and Judah are compared back to. While David shows us the type of king we need, he is not the king that we need, though. You see, two chapters ago, God had promised David, he said, after you, a son, a descendant will come and reign. For how long? Forever. He will reign. He will set all things right. That's the type of king that we need, a king who could do this for all, forever, everywhere. That's the king that's promised to be David's son. That's the king we need. That king is great King Jesus, the one who can pardon all shame-ridden criminal, all shame-ridden crippled enemies forever. Those who come to him, that is. Or in this case, are scooped up and literally brought to him. They don't even come on their own accord, and neither do we. David was the great king Mephibosheth needed. Jesus is David's descendant. He is the great king we need. Great King Jesus is also faithful and gracious. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that Jesus is the yes and amen. He's the faithful fulfillment to all of God's promises. Jesus is. Great King Jesus is gracious. Romans 5.8 says that while we are still sinners, right, enemies, he died for us. So because great King Jesus is faithful and gracious, what must we do? We must ready to receive. We must open our hearts to receive from this king. So we, we bring nothing we bring nothing. In truth, before King Jesus, we only deserve shame, only deserve the death of an enemy. And hiding often is what, hiding often feels like our only hope, right? It's us laying on the floor in that crumpled flesh, waiting for the king to give us what we deserve. But when we trust in great King Jesus, his saving work in his life and death on the cross, his resurrection, he, prom- he promises us what? What do we need to open our hearts to receive? The future, freedom, and a father. Future, freedom, and a father. The first, open your heart, your hands to receive a future. I, uh, I remember going to college so long ago. I remember going to college uh, intent on being a lawyer because my parents told me I just never took a no for an answer, so I should just, that's where I should go. We have lawyers, I should ask. They would, maybe they know if I would be a good fit. Apparently not, I wasn't. Um, because my aspirations were willing, but the boy, me, was weak, irresponsible, lazy. After my first midterms in college, I was uh, failing most of my classes. And while in despair, I had a friend in my dorm sucker me into this men's conference. I was so weak. He brought me along. But as I listened to the speakers talk at this conference, I thought... I thought about my own wicked past, right? I, I felt before this conference that I had no future, right? My grades were done, no future here. My life's over. But as I heard these speakers talk, and I thought of my wicked past, I thought of faces and names of the people I had hurt. Oh, the shame. The shame that I felt. My life is over. No future here. Who could ever or who would ever want to rescue a wretch like me? The final night, though, I witnessed grown men confessing their sin to one another. Men who hoped for a future not in a profession, but rather in a person. Great King Jesus, and in a future that he offered. I wanted to know him, too. I wanted the future that was held out. Perhaps when I say the word shame, you think, 
no future here. My life's over. What comes to mind is that thing you did, that thing done to you, that thing you maybe left undone. Maybe it's impossible standards that others have placed on you, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa. Maybe it's the impossible standard that the world says you need to be, but you keep failing at. It's shame which says your life should be over. No future for you. You can't lift yourself out of your shame. You can't provide a future for yourself, friends, but great King Jesus can. Ephesians 2 says that while you're dead, dead in your sin, not just crippled or unmotivated, dead in your sin and shame, God made you alive. It's by grace that you have been saved. It's a free gift, not something you do. Romans 5, 8 again, it says while you're still an enemy, right? Jesus dies for you. There's a better promise even still for us in Romans 8, 28, because it promises a future. It says, and we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For good. For those who are called according to his purpose, wherever shame rears its head in your life, and you think, my life is over. No future here. Receive Jesus' words that he gives a future that redeems the irredeemable. He redeems the irredeemable in your life. Maybe that's your application. Maybe you just need to hear you you say that. Or maybe you need to say that to the person next to you. He redeems the irredeemable in your life. Great King Jesus promises me, you, a redeemed future from my shameful self and my shameful past. He redeems what I never dared imagine he could. Receive a future. That's the first thing. The second thing is open your hearts, your hands to receive freedom. Freedom. See, Mephibosheth lived with the name shame. Where could he go to be free from it? Nowhere. It's literally him. His name is shame. Is your name shame? Ben Shame Leatherberry. Is that how you think of yourself? Have you retreated at Lodabar hoping to never be found? Hoping that whatever happened stays hidden forever? You can press it down. You can distract yourself. You can, you can move away, right? No, we can't run from our shame. Great King Jesus longs to give us freedom from living with shame, with that name, shame. He gives us a new name. I know this is heavy. <laughs> I know this is heavy, friends. But it's such good news that you need to hear. Perhaps you are abused. You're the, the hurt one. Right? Things were inflicted upon you with words and hands. And you need to know it's not your fault, whatever happened. Everyone is responsible for their own actions. It's not your fault what someone else did to you. They're responsible for their actions. And friends, Jesus offers freedom from the shame of what happened to you through healing. Healing comes in different ways, but all lasting healing indeed comes through Jesus Christ. It will come through Jesus Christ. Maybe healing can come through knowing that Romans 8.28 verse. My life is not over. You will heal me that I can continue to live on. Healing maybe comes through stating that God created you to have more dignity than whatever they treated you with. You're made in his very image. Healing may even come as you begin the painful but necessary process of forgiving even. Something, again, that only God can produce in us. 
Now, our sincere hope for those who hurt us, who hurt you, is that they too would repent and trust in Jesus and be saved to sin no more. That they'd even apologize to you. But even when they don't, Hebrews 10, 30-31 says this. The Lord says this. He says, vengeance, it's mine. The Lord says, I will repay. You don't need to. You can bring your shame to the Lord for God to begin to heal you. Perhaps to produce forgiveness in you. But you can leave it to God to repay what only God can. You can give it into his hands. They're steady. They're sure. They'll take care of it. Perhaps you are the abuser. The one who inflicted the hurt with those words, with those hands. We've all hurt people. We have. You are not too far gone, though. What you need to hear is your sin is not too great to not be forgiven. Shame is not your name either. It's not. The blood of Jesus was shed for that sin and shame. And great King Jesus, he came to die for who? Weak, wicked, and unworthy sinners like you and me. If you never have before, confess your sin to the Lord this morning. Confess even particularly whatever is being pressed into your mind today. Give it to him. Know that you lie crumpled, right, on the floor before the Lord with no excuse. You don't have one, but great King Jesus has not named you shame. He's named you something else. We'll talk about that in a minute. So whether you are abused or abuser or both, today, would you ask Jesus, is there shame that I need to deal with? Is there shame I've stuffed down? It's in the basement somewhere under 65 boxes, and it needs to come out to some degree. It just needs to be said, here, Lord, here's this box I don't want to talk about. With this, I would say, please know that our church has more counselors per capita than many other churches. Wes and Kimberly Johnson, Chad and Bliss Bodwin. But even if not a counselor, if not to start there, there are plenty of people who are ready to hear you, to hurt with you. That's what we're here for, family. We want to hear you hurt with you and point to great King Jesus with you. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Dealing with our shame is so that we might receive from him even greater freedom in him. Open your hearts to receive freedom to be healed, to forgive, free to even receive forgiveness. I know for some of us, we don't want to receive forgiveness. Sure, he forgives me, but I could never forgive myself. No. Yes, you can. Jesus forgives you. He's the one who can do it. Third, finally, open your hearts to receive a father. What's your new name? Son. Daughter. When a child falls down, what's the word, uh, the first word out of their mouth? Mommy! Daddy! They know where to go with the hurt, with the pain, right? There's something instinctual in children. I often like using illustrations of children, as maybe you've seen or you've heard me say, uh, because I'm so convinced that, at least maybe just me, but I think all of us are just big kids, who've learned how to hide, right, our hurts and our owies. We don't call out anymore. We hide that shame. We seem so sophisticated, don't we? But there is something there in us that knows when I am hurt, when there's something wrong with me, mommy, daddy, just wrap your arms around me. That maybe is all I need. But what about Mephibosheth? His father's dead. He had no covering, no defender of his crippled and enemy state. He hid because there was no one to call out to, to deal with his shame, or so he thought. We need to understand what David offers to Mephibosheth. 
when he says, you will eat at my table always, the table is reserved for children. Sons and daughters dine with their father. And yet, David says to Mephibosheth, become like a son to me. Galatians 4, as we read earlier today in the assurance, it tells us that Jesus was sent forth at the right time in history to redeem us so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. When you hear that word sons, I don't want you to just hear male-female. I want you to hear relationship. The son is the one who inherited in that time. What you're hearing is sonship is related to standing. You are, you are of the same inheritance as every other child, is what sonship, is what sons is pointing to. You see, we're not made like sons to God, no. We are actually adopted to be wholesale sons and daughters. We are made whole children to God. John 1.12 says this, To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. You see, we don't need to run and hide with our shame. We don't need to stuff it down, no. We actually can cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is a guttural sound a child would make for their parent. Abba is Dada, Daddy. That's what that means. You are made a son, a daughter, with full standing as a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Open your heart to receive your Father in heaven. You can practice this in your mind by praying the way that Jesus even taught us to pray. What does he say? Our Father, who art in heaven. That word Father there, it's not just, it's not a title. It's sp- supposed to be filled with all this familial warmth. Dad, Father in heaven. Pre- perhaps practice that in your prayers today and beyond. He's waiting to hear your voice. You have your Father's ear. He picks you up and puts you on his lap that he might hear your requests. So your application today is to bring your shame to your heavenly father and pray, Daddy, it hurts. Whatever I have done, whatever has been done to me, help me, heal me, be near to me. Pray to the father who is pleased to hear your voice. Just in conclusion, to close, in the uh, stage-adapted story of Les Miserables, did I say that right, French folks, Les Miserables? Okay, I don't want to say it too much like an American would. Um, there's a song in that, in that play by the main character, Jean Valjean. And he sings it. It's called, Who Am I? Valjean now had been sent to prison for stealing some, some uh, bread to feed his star, uh, starving sister's family. And after being released, he had to show this piece of paper to everyone that shows that he was a criminal. So it was almost impossible for him to get a job, uh, to stay anywhere, right? Because he had this shame of the name of Jean Valjean being a criminal. And so destitute, he assumes a new name, right? He hides away the shame and death sentence tied to his old name. Well, later on, he hears that another man has been accused of being Valjean, right? You couldn't go and change your name and hide that paper. And that man is arrested for the crimes of Valjean. And Valjean knows this man is innocent, And so he sings this song, wrestling, if he must own his shame, his past name. He sings, who am I? Can I conceal myself forevermore? Pretend I'm not the man I was before? Must I lie? How can I ever face my fellow man? How can I ever face myself again? 
Valjean chooses to declare who he was, who he is, and face his past shame. But he also sings this in the song. My soul belongs to God, I know. I made that bargain long ago. He gave me hope when hope was gone. He gave me strength to journey on. Who am I? Who are you? Through faith in the great King Jesus, you are a son. You are a daughter. That's who you are from now on, forevermore. Even when this life ends, it doesn't end. You will forever be that. That identity is set, secure, and it is yours. It's yours. He gives hope and strength because he promises you a future, redeeming your irredeemable moments. He gives you freedom, starting a process of healing that you could never do on your own. And he promises you, best of all, a father who wraps you up in his arms, who deals with the pain of your past shame. You are made a son or daughter of the king by the grace of God. By the grace of God today, open your heart to receive future freedom and a father who waits to hear your voice. Your voice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, Lord, we are so shame-ridden in our lives. We are all sinned against sinners, are we not? We're all hurt and broken vessels, and yet you promise us good promises, promises that raise us out of the dead, or out of the grave from the dead. You give us life. God, you give us a future, you give us freedom, and you become our Father. God, may we believe that today. Give us the gift of faith to believe in that today. Oh, Jesus, thank you for what you've done to bring us to God the Father. Thank you that you are our King forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.